So one of the most uh, difficult questions I get as a pastor is, why do bad things happen to Christians? I mean, yeah, we all sin, we all mess up. And Christians, when we come to Christ, our lives change. It's different. We are born again, as it would say in the Bible. And why do bad things happen to godly people rather than ungodly people? I mean, that's just like so difficult for us to really wrap our heads around. And it's especially tough because, you know, by faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches in Galatians 4 that we are the adopted sons and daughters of Christ through trusting in Jesus. I mean, so we are God's children by trusting in Jesus. That's what it says. So do you as a parent ever would ever let your kid experience suffering or pain or anything like that and i think if, we're, if we're, we think about it and we're reflective upon it i think we do on some level in fact in some cases you pay people a great deal of money to inflict suffering on your children like when they get their stitches taken out or to go you know i hate the dentist Brenna was in a play and she was acting so well that I was cringing in my seat because I hate the dentist so much. So yeah, but you pay big bucks to braces. I mean, parents pay a lot of, 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 uh, of money to, uh, to have uh, people inflict pain on them in the case of, of a dentist. I'm sorry if you're a dentist. <laughs> really, he really doesn't like dentists. <laughs> and so my parents, you know, don't call it child protective services because I'm 38, you know, but my parents, I, I think they probably inflicted some of the most intense suffering and pain on me ever in my life. And before you start thinking badly about my parents, okay, don't do that. Let me kind of explain what I'm talking about here. They spent thousands and thousands of dollars, God bless them, to send me to the most intensive wrestling camp ever. A little background on my story is I was, uh, you know, I'd never won any sport. I was always the last person to be picked on a basketball team. I played basketball, I think, for over seven years. Guess how many baskets I made? Zero. None. Zilch. Every sport I played, I, I, never, I never knew what it was ever like to win. And wrestling was no exception. And I was beat up and made fun of all throughout junior high. I mean, and in the beginning of high school, I was just... I was like a big joke of the wrestling team. I never won a single match. I was the worst guy on the team. So my parents paid big bucks to send me to this just ruthless, and it's called Jay Robinson's intensive camp, and it's no longer going on. I found out just yesterday or days ago. But, I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, it was horrible workouts. I mean, you would wake up in the morning, they'd run you so hard that you would, like, dry heave. God, it was just so bad. I've never experienced something so painful in all my life. And people would just drop out. They couldn't take it. So people would just drop like flies because they couldn't handle this wrestling camp. It was worse than many forms of military training, they, they, they claimed. And so at the end of the camp, this is, I mean, I had to take a guy up a hill. He, he made me carry him up the hill most of the time. It was like a five-mile hill. A guy's on my back, and I'm running up this hill with a guy on my back. I mean, in like 100-degree weather, it was just so bad. People were crying, dry heaving. It was a mess. All that to say, so this is how bad the camp was. At the end of the camp, you had to run 14 miles. That was the easiest 14 miles of my life. I was like, oh, this is so easy. I'm like Superman. I could just keep on going. That's how it felt. That's, the workouts were so bad that 14 miles became a joke. So, yeah, and so my parents paid big bucks for me to experience the most horrific pain of my life. And I, but you know what? 
It, I, I can't tell you how amazing it was when I went from the worst person on the team, a laughing stock, to be the, one of the best persons on the team. They would try to tell freshmen and sophomores to encourage, they tell them my story to encourage the freshmen and sophomore wrestlers. That's how good I became. I wrestled in college. I, 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 that, that first win I had, I've, like, I've never won anything in my life other than video games. <laughs> That's the only thing I ever won. I've never won anything. I got low grades. I was bad at school. I was bad at everything. And I, when I first pinned the, 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 the head guy of this tournament in like 30 seconds, I couldn't believe it was happening. I, was in, I, get, I went into shock. I'm like, I, I won? I can't believe this. And like, I was so nervous, I started bowing to the coach, shaking his hand after the match, because I, I, I couldn't believe, my mind couldn't process the joy and excitement that I got from winning that very first match. But you see... To get to that point, my parents had to inflict massive amounts of pain on me. And that's why, you know, this, these absolute two, it was two weeks of hell, I would say. It was the best thing my parents ever did for me, ever, was inflict horrific pain on me. And so God puts us through trials and suffering in life to grow our character, to cause us to depend on Jesus more. Now, you might think, okay, Nate, what's so great about depending on Jesus anyways? And I think the story that, that really demonstrates this is Joni Erickson Tata. Who's heard of her? Joni, yeah, she's pretty, she's amazing. So she has just an amazing, her life is like shows how suffering just does so much for people and just difficulty. For one, if you don't know who she is, she's a singer, a writer, a Christian speaker, a disability activist, a mouth painter, mouth painter. She's a quadriplegic. She can't walk and she has no movement in her hands. And just to be clear, she was not born this way. Uh, she lived a very normal life as a, a teenage girl in high school. And she had a very, very severe, she misjudged diving and she dived in shallow water and broke her neck. And so everything about her life just changed after that moment. Um, when she was, you know, in the bed, lying in the hospital, after she broke her neck, people, she was just, when she was told that she was never going to be able to use her legs again, never be able to use her hands in any way, she really struggled with anger and bitterness towards God. But as time went on, she realized it was God that's all that mattered. And so that knowing and depending on Jesus was the most important thing in her life, even more than her trials and her own disability. It changed her life. And now so she's a very popular speaker. She's an author. She's inspired millions of lives. She's been on TV. She's, they've made movies about her. And most importantly, she has an amazing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, I wouldn't say those, all those things together wouldn't be true unless that painful event happened in her life. And this is her answer as to why Christians suffer. And it's kind of intense. To find Jesus in your hell is joy beyond comparison. To find Jesus in your hell is joy beyond comparison. That might seem like a very intense and bold thing to say, isn't it? But that's more or less what Paul says here in our verse-by-verse -verse study of Romans 5. So let's take a look at Paul's answer as to why Christians uh, suffer, kind of mirroring Joni Erickson Tata here. Starting at verse 3. Paul writes, Now that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So the Greek word here for suffering is the Greek word thalipsis, and that's just a general word for, it's like an umbrella word for suffering. It includes things from cancer to Christian persecution. 
All of those things. Just struggles in life in general. I like how uh, New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner, he, this is how he kind of discusses this word. He says it denotes the pressure and troubles that annoy believers in this present evil age. Now, it's very important that we get kind of precise on what Paul is saying here. Words matter here. He does not say that we rejoice for our sufferings, right? Someone who is rejoicing for their suffering is someone who's like, welcomes like suffering for some unhealthy psychological reasoning. Like, oh yeah, God, do your worst to me. Like some bizarre thing like that. And that's usually accompanied with a works-based salvation. Let me kind of explain this. There are people who want to embrace suffering because they feel like God is punishing them. And in order for them to feel right in their conscience, like, okay, I have to go through this punishment and you know, then I'll feel better about myself once God is done punishing me. Or I feel so unworthy and so terrible. I need to go through some horrible trial in my life. So that, you know, I can feel cleansed. So I can feel like, okay, God, you made me suffer, so I'm, we're good now, right? That's the kind of unhealthy thing I'm talking about. And, you know, you see, you know, Middle Ages, you know, monks flog themselves, you know. I don't know anybody does that today, thankfully, I think. Um, but, yeah, so they would create suffering to erase inner shame and inner guilt. That's what the monks are doing. That's what this kind of unhealthy view says. And then, of course, there's other varieties. And some people suffer. They, they, they rejoice in it because they want attention. They feel unworthy. All these sort of things. But then you also have people who like, oh, I've lived such a hard life. Poor me, you know. Those people have it so easy. They don't understand how much I've had to work and how amazing I am. Yeah, I'm so amazing because I've had to suffer in these. So there's that sort of like self-righteous, moralistic view of suffering. And Paul is not teaching any of these like unhealthy thought patterns about suffering, which would basically amount to masochism. Like, you know, do your worst to me, God kind of thing. I want it, you know. No, it's not saying that. Rather, Paul is saying we are to have joy. We are to rejoice in the midst of suffering. That means not finding joy in and of the suffering of itself. Like you, the, you're happy just because of the suffering. No, that's not the biblical view. It's in the midst of our sufferings. Jesus didn't love pain and suffering. They were not a part of his, his plan. You know, Adam fell and plunged the entire human race into sin, death, and suffering. And so, yeah, that's why Jesus wept when Lazarus died. When he saw sin and death and pain, he wept, the shortest verse in the Bible, as they would say. But Jesus wept because he, he doesn't find joy in death and suffering in these painful things in and of themselves. And so we're to find joy in the midst of our suffering, not for our suffering, because we know that our suffering will not be in vain. When God has suffering in your life, he's using it for something better in your life. There is not a single meaningless and purposeless tear that you've ever shed. Do you know that? Every, whether, whether you think the glass is like, you know, one third full or half full, whatever it is, or half empty, actually. It's, it's always for a good reason. Any pain, any sadness that you've had in your life right now is not for nothing. It's always, if you trust in Jesus, it's always for something greater. And that means we're not to be stoics about pain, like act like nothing hurts us, like we're unmoved. Or like, oh, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm like a Terminator. I can take any pain you can throw at me kind of thing. No, we are to acknowledge the pain 
and bring it to God. Bring that, you know, it's, it cry out to God. That's what the Psalter is there for, is if someone crying out to God in pain and suffering, bringing it before the throne of grace and mercy. That's how we as Christians are to process pain. We're not to pretend like it's not going on. We're to acknowledge it and bring it before God, bring it before Christian brothers and sisters for prayer. Now, I want to read through this whole text as a whole Romans 3 through 5 because it can get kind of Yoda-esque, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a second. But it just, it, the following thought patterns, you may not see a connection, but I want to read the whole thing and see how it's connected as a whole unit of thought here in Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love, God's love for us, has been poured into our hearts through the, the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, when you read this list, it kind of goes from one to another to another to another. And, uh, you know, some people read this and they fail to see the connection that it makes. And I, I kind of know this experience. When I was a, a kid, I saw actually a Phantom Menace in the movies like 10 times, which is really excessive. My dad took me. I think he saw me like at least seven times. But I remember this, this quote from Yoda. And it's like, Yoda, where are you going with this? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it wouldn't be the first thing he said that didn't make any sense, but he says, yeah, I won't do the impression. I've learned my lesson. I, I, I almost did it. You notice that? But I stopped myself. I had decency and self-respect, and I stopped myself from the Gollum impression that I did so many years ago, which people still haven't forgotten. Fear is a path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. You're like, I don't know about that, Yoda. That's kind of sketchy. Bad script writing there. I'm not sure if those things follow necessarily. And so he kind of makes this connection. But I don't want you to think Paul is doing something Yoda-like here, like he's making no connection. There's a, suffer there's a clear connection between suffering and hope here. It's not kind of arbitrary like someone might think Yoda's doing here. Because, And I say that because after all, people, when they suffer, and I've suffered, we, we get bitter. We get angry sometimes. Yeah, definitely sometimes. A lot of the time we, we can struggle with this when people go through tough times. And so, yes, Christians can get bitter and angry because I'm talking about this because he talks about how it leads to hope. But over the, the long haul, what I'm saying is that you will struggle with bitterness and anger. But over the long haul, over the, the, the whole, like, you know, taking a step back here a bit, it's going to lead to hope for you. That's what Paul is getting at here. And there's no conditions in this text, like if you do this and you'll have hope. No, rather, what, what Paul is saying here is if you trust in Christ, God will work it out in your life that eventually you will have hope through your suffering. Now, I want to look at the word endurance and kind of see how one follows the other here. The first word here, endurance. This word actually uh, can be translated as single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. That's what the Greek word suggests, and the Bible is written in Koine Greek, and so we have access to that today. So suffering produces something that forces us, compels us in many ways, to focus on what's most important, to have a single-minded kind of purpose in our minds towards Christ and towards our faith in Christ. I love how Thayer's Greek lexicon explains how this Greek word Hypomona is used for single-mindedness. It says a characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. So suffering helps us focus on the most important thing in life. God uses pain in our life 
Kind of like how my mother used to wake me up when I wouldn't get up for school. You know, she'd kind of like be really sweet and like, hey, Nate, you know, wait, wake up, sweetheart. You know, she's like, you know, patting my head like mommies do, you know. Uh, and so I wouldn't get up because, you know, I didn't listen to her kindness. So eventually, after like 20 minutes of like, hey, Nate, time to get up. You know, moms are so gracious, aren't they? They're so sweet. My mom's very sweet. After 20 minutes, she would snap and she would take cold water and throw it on me. And that would wake me up. That would be like, oh, I'm getting up for school now. Woo. You know, I mean, you're just like, wow, I'm waking up. Next time she does a sweet thing, I'm going to get up right away from that. And so that's kind of how pain works. It wakes us up to what's to, to our purpose. And I love how C.S. Lewis says it best. God whispers us to our pleasures. Like my mom, you know, she would she would be sweet and kind of lull me awake, but I wouldn't wake up. I'm like, I'm sleeping in, you know. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. You're going to listen to that cold you know, water hitting you at you know, 7 in the morning more than anything else. But shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So pain and suffering, it wakes us up. You know, it says, wait a minute, I can't do this on my own. It makes us realize we're not God. We're not in control of the suffering. We have no control. Only God does. So we have no choice but to trust, rely, and depend on him. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 to describe this reality. Really, I mean, Paul, you know, he wasn't always like, everything's going great in my life. I have to have a smile on my face. There were some things he dealt with that were really intense. For we did not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Didn't want to live. That's how painful it was. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You ever just feel just the wind so out of your sails, you just feel so in despair, you feel like you just, you've been sentenced to death. Well, Paul, know what's that, Paul knows what that's like, and he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then we rely on, on Christ in these times that are very difficult. And what does that do? That trains us, that gives us an inner training system to say, okay, I'm depending on God and through the suffering, I'm going to depend on God more in my life. And that's the meaning of this word here, character or testedness. It, it, it's kind of a habit in us that we will rely on Christ more as a habit in our lives. So the initial thing helps us focus on Christ. Then it becomes a, ha a habit-forming thing, which in turn gives us greater hope. Now, hope is something we, have, we use hope in English. It can mean something uncertain or unsure. You know, I hope this happens. But in, in Greek, it has a much different sense. It means assurance and confidence. So we have this perseverance. We have, we're, we're focused on Christ. Then we develop a habit for focusing on Christ. And then we have this that, that gives us assurance that we're in Christ. It gives us assurance and comf comforting throughout the suffering process that we have this habit. And we're like, hey, I've developed this habit of trusting in Jesus throughout my life. And, you know, that assures me that I'm a child of God. That assures me that God accepts me, that Jesus died for me, that uh, I have access to God in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit works in tandem with suffering to, to assure us that we are the children of God, that we have eternal salvation, that when you go to sleep at night, rest in your pillow, you know that if you were to die that night, you would be before God, you'd be before Christ in glory when you died. And so this is why he says in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us to believers. 
And so, yeah, it focus, suffering focuses us, it trains us. It trains us. And that training, that character building, then says, oh, I have this character. Then I, I have this assurance that God does love me. He accepts me in Christ. It allows us to see more clearly God's love for us. And then that, that, that grows our relationship with God. And then that becomes a profound blessing for us. And so this is why Joni Erickson Tata can say this really intense quote that I said earlier, to find Jesus in your hell is joy beyond comparison. Suffering points us to Jesus. It tells us, you know, who Jesus is. Jesus suffered for us, died for our sins. And so we are united to Christ. It reminds us that we are united to Christ and we, we share in his suffering. And we, we get to be closer to Jesus. And we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And that blesses us because we grow Jesus as God. And it grows in our amazing joy and relationship with him through suffering. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 16 through 18. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he goes on to say, if we're to reign with him, we're going to suffer with him. And so suffering is a part of being a Christian. That's why you have passages all throughout talking about suffering. Anybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted in Timothy. And so we shouldn't be shocked as if something strange is happening to us when we're encountering suffering or difficult times in our life. Like, oh, I'm a Christian. How could I be suffering? Rather, it's to be uh, expected. Uh, I can remember when I was uh, picking out uh, what church I was going to go before I came here, before I arrived here, I was looking at a number of different churches and different opportunities for me to serve and do ministry at. And I was looking at pros and cons, you know, writing it out a list. You know, my wife and I were like really racking our brains over what we should pick. And I remember I was talking to a friend like, well, this church has this. And obviously I chose this one because this totally went out. It's the best, right? <laughs> uh, I said, well, I have, I have this challenge over here and this challenge over there. And he stopped me, my friend, and he said, you know, Nate, there's nowhere you're going to go where you're not going to suffer. Suffering is an unavoidable part of life, and especially the Christian life. It, and for that reason, even as a Christian, we can have the hope that that suffering leads to something more beautiful. It leads to something more greater, and it blesses us as time goes on. Now, there's a movement out there in the, in the, in the church that says, well, you know, basically, well, if you believe enough, if you have enough faith, and you name it and claim it, if you believe enough, you know, you're not going to have cancer. You know, God's going to take away your cancer. You're going to have a full bank account. You're going to be rich. You're going to be healthy and wealthy. If you just believe enough and you, and you put it in Jesus's name, you're going to get that Mercedes Benz. And you're not, you know, you're going to have great, a great bill of health if you just believe enough. And so often when people die, you know, and they say, well, I guess I just didn't believe enough, didn't trust God enough. Well, you see, the Bible teaches something completely different. It says, no, God brings us into suffering to get closer to Jesus. This is saying that, yeah, they're saying, well, you know, uh, God's sign of blessing is if you get health and wealth. The opposite is true. The Bible teaches that you have suffering to show you that health and wealth are not the most important things. But Jesus Christ alone is the most important thing. He is to be honored and treasured and glorified, not just stuff or any other idols we have. He is God, and so he is the greatest. So suffering shows us 
that all of our idols, we can't depend and rest on those idols. We can't lean on those things. We only have Christ. And so suffering brings out this unavoidable truth in our lives. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, suffering removes from us rival sources of confidence and hope. Other places we might look to, look to for our sense that deep down we are okay. You know, our relationships our success, whatever it is, and that our future will be okay. Suffering drives us to the one place where we find real hope, real confidence and certainty in, in God. And so if you are suffering this morning, God is not punishing you. He's not mad at you if you trust in Christ. I know people struggle with that a lot. And if, but if you entertain that thought pattern that God is punishing you and he's mad at you because you're going through something really hard right now, that's going to make you bitter. That's going to make you angry at God in the midst of your trials, and you're going to grow farther from God. So it's important as we're suffering to keep that in the forefront of our minds. So whenever going through, through trials, we have to think, God is putting me through this right now to bring me closer to him because he loves me. He died for me and gave himself up for me. So suffering for the Christian is actually not a call to go farther from God. It's God's call to say, come closer to me, not to run from me. God wants you to grow more and more dependent on him rather than other things, other stuff in your life. If suffering is kind of God's way of saying, hey, remember, I am the most important thing in your life. I am the most valuable thing in your life. Not your bank account, not your house, not your cars, not even your family. I am the most valuable thing in your life. And I love the way the book Glorious Ruin, How Suffering Sets You Free, puts it. He's, this, is, this is how the author asks it. What is that thing in your life that if God were to take it away, you'd feel like life was not worth living? What's that one thing? We all have something like that in our lives, don't we? When we're able to answer that question, we will figure out what we're really worshiping and what, by definition, might lie at the root of our suffering. It could be our children, our spouse, an ambition or a dream of financial success. Those good gifts God gave us for enjoyment that we have turned into idols. Suffering is often the process of these things being stripped away. Indeed, there is nothing like suffering to remind us how much we need God. With the good news that his purpose and plan for our lives is more or moves in a different direction than our own. That's certainly true. See, God is more concerned with you knowing him, focusing on him, than feeling a little more comfortable with your imperfect success, with your imperfect wife, your imperfect kids, your imperfect friends, imperfect jobs, whatever it is you rest on. We all rest on something. You take all of those things which cannot bring you true and lasting happiness like Jesus can. So it's constantly pointing to the true source of joy in this life, God in Christ. Those things are temporal and fleeting. But God is eternal, perfect and everlasting. Paul realized this best in Philippians 3.8. He says, Indeed, I have counted everything as, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. It's nothing can compare to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the most important thing. So yeah, 
Suffering highlights that all those idols just suffer loss compared to knowing Jesus. That's what it shows us. And this is why when people do have everything, people have very comfortable lives and they are very rich and they're very lavish in their lifestyle or they're very, and, and they're very pleasure seeking. They're not sacrificing for other people. They're not caring for the people. All they care about is themselves and their own seeking of pleasure. They're not serving or caring for anybody and they're all about themselves. People like that, ironically, are the most depressed, the most anxious and the most miserable. Whereas people who are, you know, sacrificing for others, giving to others, caring for others and not focus on themselves and serving the mission of Christ, people like that are filled with the most joy. You see, shallow pleasures cannot fulfill your heart's desire. Only the deep joy of knowing the eternal God, and we can never, ever forget that. Reminded of the life of uh, Jane Marketsky, who is actually known as a Nightbird. She's a singer. Have you guys heard of, she was on American's, America's Got Talent. She's saying the song, It's Okay. Has anybody heard of uh, Nightbird, by chance? Okay, some people have. Good. She sang the song, It's Okay. And she called herself Nightbird because she wanted to be viewed as a bird who sings joyfully in the darkness. And uh, she came up with this because while she was performing, she was battling with cancer. She was singing and everything. And in 2017, she first received the news. And she's very young. I, I believe she's 30, around there. And so she, ref, she ref, received the news that she had uh, stage 3 breast cancer and had only six months to live. And great news is, she defied all odds. In 2018, she was actually cancer-free. However, this was short-lived because a few months later, the cancer came back, roaring back, and she had uh, less than a 10% chance of survival. I think it was like, she said, 4 or 5%. She's so optimistic. She's like, I, I've, I, I've got at least 4%. I got something. And to make matters worse, her husband of five years left her, and then she went on to win her second uh, battle with cancer alone in 2020. And so after all this, she goes on America's Got, America's Got Talent and she won the Golden Buzzer, which is kind of a big deal. And she revealed at that moment that she had cancer again all over her body. Simon Cowell, I think we, you know Simon Cowell, is a really grumpy critic, you know, he's always like an English accent and he's very hard on people who sing kind of he, some people that sing badly think they're good he like he's like a wrecker of dreams really <laughs> and he says some he's, like, he's a tough guy and he's a bad cop definitely of, of the crew on america's got talent and so but her performance was so beautiful and, and she was struggling with cancer it, it caused simon to hit the golden thing and um golden buzzer and he was crying. He had tears. This harsh, rough, acidic critic who had tears in his eye over this. And, uh, and she's just amazing. She's a source of joy and positivity in the most difficult of times while battling, battling cancer. She said this, and I couldn't believe it. And this is right after her husband left her. She says, you can't wait until your life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. And you know, the world sees that and they wonder, why is this person so positive, so optimistic in like this horrific battle that she's going through, things I've never even faced. And in an interview, she revealed what her source of joy was. 
He says, I believe that God can heal in one instant. I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there was something God was growing in the field that is me. And if God had pulled up all of the hardships too soon, it would have also pulled up all of these miracles that he did in my spirit. And she described the things that God taught her in some of these blog posts. I'm just going to read a few to you just to show you kind of what kind of person she is, how amazing she is. Maybe we missed it that God showed us when he first introduced himself to us that he will crawl into the dirt to be near us and he will fill our lungs with air when we don't know how to breathe. And in her final days, she was comforted in the fact that uh, God was not far from her in her suffering, but very near to her in her suffering, getting closer and closer to God, which is really being closer and closer to God is really getting closer and closer to heaven. She says, when it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness he adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that when you suffer, you have to do it perfectly. We all get frustrated. We all get bitter. We, we really do struggle. But God has this persistent notion of coming close and showing up anyways because he's a gracious God and we suffer the most. This is how she writes of her one experience. Even though she was struggling, God kept on coming closer and closer. She says, I am still reeling, drenched in sorrow. I am still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means I have all the more reason to say thank you because God is drawing near to me. Again and again and again, no matter how many times he is sent away. And right now I can tell you she is the most, she's closer to God than all of us because just last week, Sunday, she passed. And she's with Jesus Christ right now in glory. See, it is her pain and suffering that allowed her to focus fix her mind, fix her focus on the most important thing that there is, Jesus Christ. And someone commenting on her life who also suffered with cancer while being pregnant. Pregnant's not being bad enough. I mean, goodness gracious, suffering with cancer while being pregnant. Angela Davis, she writes for the Gospel Coalition. She wrote an article commenting on the life of Nightbird after she died. She says that uh, this is how it relates to her life. She says, I can identify with Nightbird in both her pain and her hope. I too received a life-changing cancer diagnosis before age 30. Four weeks after the birth of my first child, the joy of motherhood was capsized by the waves of fear and doubt as my battle with cancer began. Nausea and vomiting became close. Companions. I argued with God much the way Nightbird does. I too knew God on the bathroom floor. He drew near to me in my lowest moments and gave me hope of his presence. He was not repulsed. 
by my anger, illness, and tears. See, he drew near and realized, this is what she realized, hope is often clearest when we have nothing to cling to, but to cling to Jesus Christ alone. See, Jesus Christ didn't stand far off, distant indeed, just watching things happen. No, he came in to our suffering, to our pain, to our mess, to everything, because he loves you, he loves us. Angela closed her article on Nightbird in this way, which this quote really struck me. It said, you might call the cross humanity's bathroom floor. God met us there. And I love this quote because it reminds me over and over again that God's not there for people who think that they're righteous, think that they have their life together. You know, oh, well, you know, I can only get close to God once my life is perfect and I'm on top of the mountain. I've climbed Mount Everest and now finally God is here for me, you know, you know because I've, I've worked hard enough. I've, I've gotten healthy enough. I've, you know, went through all these programs and did all this. So I'm good now, God. Now I can get close to you. No, the truth is that's not where God's office is at. God's office is at the end of your rope when you have nothing left. That's when you come to meet Jesus on a bathroom floor. When you are suffering and hurting the most, he is there in your suffering and your hurt. And when you know him and you come to know who he is and what kind of God he is, a God of grace and love and mercy, and that someday you will never face pain ever again for billions, billions of years, he will wipe every tear from your eye because he is so good and so kind. When you come to know that God, you don't want to know any, anything else. So if you've not trusted in Jesus this morning, come to know the God who suffered for you, gave his life for you, and unite to him by faith. You will have eternal life. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this life is but a slight momentary affliction compared to the glory that we'll experience in knowing Jesus Christ forever and ever. So if you haven't, trust in Christ this morning. He is the way, the truth, and the light. There's no other way to the Father but through him. Let's pray.